Thoughts high, spite lights like a lightning strike. Left in the dark will turn mice biting on your mic. Thunder cracks gives you a fright, your plight sealed all night. Light the candle. The pit of power is more than you can handle. No video game enemies to strangle. You see, if you unplug this society, there would be many people staring at an empty screen. Saying, what does it all mean? Get out and ask people living in the scene. But now if you don't know, you Google it. Living on Facebook, what's love got to do with it? Dreaming of being the next YouTube phenomena. What is wrong with you? I better suck on a thermometer. You got the fever, there's nothing that is stopping you. Except for this fireware shutting down your monitor. Hi, this is Oli, and I would like to welcome and thank you for joining me in the Movement Revolution podcast, first episode of Season 2. For the very first episode, I'm extremely thankful that Chris Johnson, author of Running on Resistance, joined us to share an amazing 40-minute masterclass. So here you go. I'm so excited to have my next guest, as he has influenced my physical therapy practice ever since and continues to do so. He has always amazing content on Instagram with a rocking newsletter. He has a book called Running on Resistance, someone on top of his game professionally as an athlete and a clinician. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Chris Johnson. Thank you so much for having me and for stroking my ego. Um, <laughs> you know, like, uh, like you, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the journey as well. So uh, it's always fun to catch up and uh, it's flattering when people reach out to, to have a chat and I guess for to give me a platform to share my perspective. So I look forward to it. I've always followed you and so stoked really that you're here. I'm very thankful. I can't thank you enough. Of course. All right. So just to start with, let's start with tennis because you mentioned that in your mailing list. I used to play tennis before as a kid, but of course not in your level as a, as a top, almost like getting into a scholarship. Do you still play tennis and how did you transition from tennis to endurance events? No, I, uh, tennis is a pastime, uh, at this point. And I suppose if someone wanted to get out and hit some ground strokes on a nice sunny afternoon that I, I would be willing to do that. But, um, yeah, it's funny since I've really gotten into running and triathlon and I suppose endurance sports, um, I haven't picked up in a, a racket in a while. Um, and maybe I'll come back to it. You know, we have, uh, we have a three and a five-year-old boy and girl. So, uh, my daughter is asking if we can play some tennis this summer. And, uh, you know, I was looking at my wife, like, uh, -oh, we're going to open Pandora's box again, because it was such a big part of my pastime. Um, I would be on court four, six plus hours a day. Um, wow. yeah, so it, Unfortunately, it's not, and maybe fortunately, it's not a part of, uh, of my sport repertoire these days. Um, but it's funny. I mean, tennis, it's such a, a tough sport on the body. I mean, it's always the sports that, that look most graceful and elegant, right? Um, mm -hmm. but it's a lot of, um, you know, st starting, stopping, quick changes of direction. So, you know, I, uh, I got into triathlon almost to rescue myself from a lot of sports like that because it was very soothing. It was predictable, uh, predictable movements and motions. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been a blessing in disguise, but I also think tennis was so important when I was younger among other sports um, to really fortify my musculoskeletal system, you know, because 
I, I don't think a lot of people realize, even though running always gave me a huge advantage in sport, uh, and I've always been on a bicycle literally since I was three years old, um, that I never really started to focus on endurance sports until my early 20s. And I think that was such a blessing in disguise. And uh, for all you parents listening to this podcast, please, na- please take note. Yeah, because uh, I've also learned that recently, especially for young ones, it's good to have that kind of variation of sport so that if ever they decide to go into a, to, to focus on one sport, that will really help them because they have a pretty good base. Yeah, I think the more you can expand a young athlete's movement repertoire and uh, just get them exposed to a bunch of different movements and skills, almost like general preparation work, um, that that does wonders. And I think society and our culture pulls us in the complete opposite direction. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to work with a, a young athlete, very gifted athlete who started to become a little bit um, perhaps too specialized in sport, um, endurance sports. And, you know, he's been dealing with a, a bone stress injury. And uh, yeah, it's just that doesn't bode well moving forward. I, I think he'll get on the other side of it and get his ducks in a row. Um, but I, I just think it's really important to expose kids to a wealth of a wealth of activities in axial loaded sports. You know, so when I say axial loaded uh, ball sports, so basketball, um, soccer, tennis, volleyball, um, that's going to expose the body to a lot of odd and unpredictable dynamic movements and loads, which is going to help to really strengthen our bones. Awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. I hope, I hope people will really um, get all the the great nuggets uh, from you because I already feel that we're going to get a lot of um, great information from you. Cool. So regarding your book, uh, running or insistence, I mean, this is one of my favorite books. You have a chapter on farmers carries, Sometimes um, we have clients who don't believe in the effects of certain exercises. How do you approach that kind of um, situation? I lean heavily on Dan John and a quote that I believe that I, that was actually uh, at the beginning of that chapter, but you know, Dan's someone who's a very well-respected world-renowned strength coach, uh, who's also a Fulbright scholar. Um, This guy is just very impressive and, he has an uncanny ability to make the complex simple. And uh, I believe that, you know, the story goes that he had a, an orthopedic injury involving his wrist and that uh, prevented him from doing a lot of his typical resistance training. And that's when he started doing a lot of loaded carries and on the cover of one of his books, I think it's, uh, um, can you go, he has a bunch of books, so uh, don't quote me on that, but you see him basically hugging a rucksack and he's basically out on a snowy day um, and he's pulling a sled behind him. But he was quoted as saying like, loaded carries have done more for my athleticism than any other lift. And, um, and I think that the beauty of the loaded carry is, and there's a bunch of different variations. So I'll speak to a couple that I tend to prioritize, but um, with that said, any exercise that you can modify a number of ways means that you have one hell of an exercise on your hands. So you think of a loaded carry and all the different carrying variations you can do. 
You think of a squat, you could do a wall sit, you could do an air squat, a goblet squat, a back squat, a rear foot elevated split squat. I, same thing goes with the deadlift. So the reason I love the loaded carry though, is it challenges grip strength and it challenges you to get upright. All right. Um, and the one, the, the variation that I tend to prioritize in working with runners is what I call a farmer's march, which is a loaded carry that you're marching. Um, there's not a lot of research on it. Stu McGill has done some research showing that it really challenges the abdominal and trunk musculature uh, in the lateral hip, um, which has obvious salience to running. But the beauty of that is you also don't need to cue it. So when I teach this or introduce it, I say, first off, this is a very safe exercise because if you get into trouble, you're not under a bar. You're not going to get trapped under a bar. All you do is drop the weight. All right. Make sure you don't drop it on your foot. But I think that's something that's very important when you're introducing heavier loads with someone who's green to resistance training or perhaps inexperienced or novice. Safety is the, the top concern um, early on. Well, at any point. So, but I love, I love the farmer's march because it teaches trunk stiffness and then you have to have single leg postural stability, which is a fancy word to say balance. We know that with running, you're never in contact with both feet at the same time. So I tend to, to work those in a lot and people are always surprised at kind of loads that we get up to, you know? So for someone like you, I would say we should comfortably getting you to handle maybe 60 to 75 pounds in each hand, you know? So like a benchmark for you would be to take 80% of your body weight and split that between mm -hmm. both hands. Um, so with the, the farmer's march, I say, if you can't march out for 30 seconds, the weight's too heavy. If you can't march, or if you can march for more than 90 seconds, the weight's too light. So you just put some guardrails on people. Um, and it would be remiss of me not to say that don't be enamored by single leg exercises. I'm not prioritizing um, single leg exercises. I, I think it's a combination of the compound movements and the fundamental lifts, as well as peppering in uh, some single leg stuff for the obvious transference it, it has to running. Yeah, I really like what you mentioned about how you can vary certain exercises. So like you mentioned with Dan John, I guess he started hugging one. You can do that as start if a person has a difficulty with grip, so they can just hold on to something and do the, the loaded carry. But that's really great information again, Chris. Yeah, and for people who are runners or working with that population, you know, when you get them doing this farmer's march, what you want to do, make sure you're having them do it on firm level ground and also monitor, are they gripping or clawing with their toes? We want to think of adopting a gentle splay, all right? And when you go to lower the non-balancing leg, encourage that person to initiate contact with their forefoot before gently kissing the heel to the ground for the reason being that starts to train someone to adopt a shorter step length. And that's the key variable. When you hear a lot of people tout cadence is a retraining strategy, it's step length. So cadence is a means to that end. We use cadence to engender a shorter step length. Okay, just to clarify, um, step 
length would be instead of running like this, you would be going for something more narrow. Is that uh, no, not not necessarily narrow. So step length is you're just basically rather than having having someone take a very long stride, you're trying yeah. to get them to take more steps per minute. All right. But if you're programming the loaded carry and you're working with a runner, you don't even need to tell them really why you're doing it unless they pro, but just to say, hey, I want you, when you go to lower the non-balancing leg, initiate contact with the forefoot and gently kiss a heel to the ground. Not because forefoot striking is the answer. You're doing that to just, again, shorten one's step length. Because if you allow them, if, if they basically uh, default to their own devices, they may take a much longer step and initiate with a, a distinct rear foot strike. Awesome. But I don't want to be, I don't want to be too misleading here because uh, people could look into that. No worries. Okay. Next, I would like to ask about um, specifically high inter intensity interval training also for the marathons. Cause uh, I wanted to ask initially, what is the ideal time preparation for an endurance event? For example, a marathon. Yeah, it all depends on where someone's coming from. You know, I, one of the things that you'll hear me say, I sound like a broken record, is don't violate the RTF rule, rush to failure, all right? Um, if people are training for, for a marathon, you want to give them a long runway because it takes a while to get the body conditioned, uh, and that's not a process that you can rush. So, you know, I, I would want to say like at least at least 16 weeks out but you have to sort of say, who is this person that's in front of us that wants to race in the marathon? What's their past medical history? What's their running background? What races have they done? All right. Um, there's a lot of considerations before you start even putting pen to paper. You need to sort of clearly identify what point A is. And we know what point Z is. Point Z is to run the marathon and to get through it unscathed with uh, a time that you're proud of that's that's realistic for your abilities um so yeah I, I think it really it depends on the person where they're coming from um and to just slowly work them you can't cheat the volume you know i think everyone's trying to take shortcuts and when you look at you know the best distance runners in the world they're logging a lot of volume i mean you talk to any serious distance runner uh, I consulted, I think maybe four or five people in the last week. Um, they're all running at least on the, on the bottom end of that range, 60 miles with people running 110 miles. All right. That's per week, right? That's per week. So you can, you can get a sense. Now, most of that is they're out on just easy breezy conversation pace runs. Um, and then depending on where they are in their training, then they'll start layering in some other stuff. Um, you know, which, you, you often refer to as uh, the hot sessions. Mm -hmm. I love the way that you um, put, put it into like point A to point Z, because it is definitely a process. If you're going to start preparing for a marathon or something like that, you really got to start from point A before you get to point Z. And it, you got it kind of puts into perspective how many steps have to be done before you get there. Amazing. Yeah. And yeah, um... I, I always say with people who reach out and want me to, to get involved with them from a coaching standpoint, um, we have to first say, is this someone who's really appropriate for coaching? Because I have a lot of people reach out and I say, look, I, 
you know, I, I respect your, your motivation and your drive to do this, but, um, this is a physical therapy problem that you're dealing with. You know, you have swelling in your knee. We can't try to stack performance on that. We need to get you in a good state, get you into a rhythm with your training. Um, and for someone who's been training consistently and healthy, um, I'm, I'm very reluctant to go in and start pulling levers until I have a, a good grasp of where they're coming from. So I want to see what the last at least four to six weeks of their training looks like. How are they managing things? And then what's the backdrop of their life? Is this someone who is running a business, who is perhaps a young parent where we know sleep may be falling by the wayside? You have to reconcile all these moving parts. And then what you're putting down on paper is your best guess. And we want it to be grounded in science, but so much of this uh, is you're, you're saying, here's what I think would be sensible based on everything I know. All right. And then you have to let them get after it and see how they respond. I always know if we screwed up, if someone gets sick, injured, starts having lackluster performances, it's saying we're, we're missing the target. Right. So I think it's very important to throw softballs at people early on, you know, and they're like, wow, this is easy. I mean, I thought you were going to be giving me more proof tolerance to what I gave you. And then let's start nudging. Cool. This is one is, um, can I take a step back really quick? You asked me about high intensity interval training. Um, what do you usually do for, uh, in preparation for a marathon or do you suggest? Yeah. So I think that you want to have some variety in your runs once you're into a rhythm with training. So like, I want someone to have like a solid three months of training in, um, generally speaking, before I start peppering in, you know, some strides, some intervals. So when we talk about high intensity interval training, we need to take a step back and look at the different approaches, um, or options that one might have for, uh, for endurance training. So, Classically, I think most of us are familiar with long, slow distance training. Um, mm -hmm. This is one bout or one set of an exercise. It's long duration. This could be, hey, you go out on a 60 to 90 minute conversation pace run, let's say four out of 10 on the category ratio scale, okay, um, which is basically um, something that we can put in the show notes um, that would qualify as somewhat hard. And I, I think that these descriptors are not helpful for a lot of runners. So like the category ratio scale, zero is rest. One is um, very easy. Two is easy. Three is moderate. Four is somewhat hard. So when we talk about polarized training, where 80% of your training should be like sub threshold, we're talking about really that two, three, four, really three, four out of 10 on the RPE scale. Then you get into the first ventilatory threshold or lactate turn point. Five out of 10 is given the descriptor of hard. Six it isn't given a descriptor. So like five, six is what people often refer to as a black hole of training. And then once you get to seven, um, it gets to very hard. Eight, nine often aren't rated, and then 10 is maximal, 
All right. So when you think of training zones, if we boil this down to a simple three zone model, zone one is really that one to four out of 10. All right. That that's associated with low lactate levels. Five to six is lactate accommodation, where you're sort of buffering it at a one-to-one -one ratio, generally speaking. And then lactate accumulation is when you're at seven and above. All right. So long, slow distance is going to be more of that three to four out of 10. Then you get into sprint interval training. These tend to be like 30-second max bouts. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, perhaps you could throw, I mean, you're starting to get really strides and beyond. Um, and then high intensity interval training would be one to four minutes. Not, not necessarily all out, but very hard. Right. So I think that those are really important. So long as someone goes into those workouts with a high state of readiness and they have the tissue capacity to withstand those workouts but you need to be very calculated in terms of what takes place on the front end and back end of that workout. Meaning if you're going to do say four by four minute efforts, which is a classic sort of hard interval session uh, based on the work of Helgerud. Um, if say, if you do that on a Thursday, your Wednesday should be very light as well as your Friday and maybe Fridays go for a walk. All right. So with all these workouts, it's how are you staggering them? You know, how are they interfacing with your life? And then what are some of the other drills that you're doing um, and other training that's working in a supplemental manner for those more challenging sessions? Yeah, that, that kind of reminds me of the past newsletter you just sent because you were able to uh, explain a whole week of training. And there was one with high intensity interval training. So Thank you for uh, expounding more on that here in, in the show. Yeah, hopefully it was clear. I mean, I want to make sure I'm not taking people uh, too far down the rabbit hole. So if folks <laughs> have questions, reach out. Yeah, they can definitely check out your IG and then. Yeah, I'm going to do a post on that exactly. Because people throw that RPE scale around a lot without ever anchoring it. Meaning, unless you take someone through a max say what I often do is I'll take people through a max heart rate treadmill protocol. And as they're going through that, I do it in two minute blocks. All right. Um, and I'm trying to get them up to their max heart rate within at least 18 to 20 minutes. And if the final 15 seconds of each two minute block, I'm saying, okay, here's the RPE scale. What would you rate it? So now I can start getting them to correlate their heart rate versus their RPE versus their pace. All right. So I think that's really important. So you get people looking at these different, um, these different variables and correlating them based on how they're feeling from an exertion standpoint. Yeah, I was, well, again, thank you for that. I was, I just wanted to ask quickly, you mentioned about lactate, lactate threshold. Does that mean whenever you have like clients, you have them taking the, you know, the blood test? No, not at all. It, to me, that's very impractical. And I see a lot of people doing that. Um, and you know, it, it's a practice that I think is it's, it's justified in certain instances, but when you plug it into the reality, I mean, to me, it's just, it doesn't make sense to have someone rolling around with a, a lactate analyzer. Um, 
with the caveat, maybe if they're world-class and this is their livelihood, I think that, yeah, maybe that's a little bit different. Um, but for a lot of age groupers, even competitive age groupers, there's a lot of factors that can influence that. So I, I think you have to be careful reading into it too much um, unless you're in a research setting or someone is involved with endurance sports uh, to put food on the table. Cool, cool. Thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, you mentioned about tissue capacity. My next question is about um, possibly having knee pain during running, for example, trail running, because in trail runnings, probably you get go uphill and then downhill. And sometimes uh, for people with knee pain, it's worse when you go downhill. Mm -hmm. how, how do you transition those kinds of um, clients or for running downhill? Well, I think that if people uh, have gotten into a situation where their knee has become sensitized, um, and I think it's very important to differentiate sensitization and pain from injury. All right. So, I mean, if someone is say they're running downhill and they're having knee pain and maybe they're a 50 year old master's level athlete and they have a knee effusion, they have a loss of end range motion. Um, they could very well have a degenerative meniscal tear or they could have meniscal pathology and maybe their knee is swelling because the downhill running is bringing it about. Um, maybe they've just gotten sensitized because they've been doing too much downhill running. It's not so much they're dealing with a frank injury um, so much as like their knee is like, hey, just give me a break for a little bit. Like we've been on the gas. So I think that first off, it's just important to have good communication lines with athletes because you don't need to all of a sudden do a, do a U-turn or make a 180 degree pivot. You just need to pull back on hill running, right? Specifically downhill. That person is probably fine if you put them on level ground or even if you have them do uphill running. So if you just make a brief change in the interim and then start to layer or expose them back to downhill running, oftentimes they'll do very well. All right. Um, and I, I think that a lot of times people freak out in and around pain and then they start getting worried and they think, Oh no, I'm never going to be able to trail run again. No, you will you just give your body a chance to just um, settle. And then gradually, I, I do believe in exposure though. I, I think that it's very important that we, to the best of our abilities, really de-emphasize an avoidance strategy. All right. So if someone's not going to do downhill running, let's see what we can do to get some load through that knee uh, or the knee extensor um, complex, because that's important. They're going to have to call on that. You don't want them to just lose capacity and then plug back into what, what was a sensitizing activity. The next one is for anterior hip pain, how would you differentially diagnose a hip flexor issue from a hip joint issue for runners? Because I've seen something recently on the net that a diagnosis was done doing a hop test, single leg hop test. So mm -hmm. I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on how you would differentially diagnose that. Yeah. So anytime you're dealing with hip pain in a runner, you need to have the utmost confidence that you're not dealing with a bone stress injury because we know the femoral neck is a high risk site, meaning it's tough to unload. It has poor blood supply. And if you get these wrong, nothing good is happening. All right. And a lot of people don't have these on their radar. If someone tells you that they have a hip flexor strain, 
the next question straight away is when did it happen? Because I don't know about you, but I've torn my rectus from kicking a wet soccer ball when I was a sophomore in high school. And I will recount details to that day that are just scary because that was an acute event. And I can't think of any runner I've ever worked with that I've honestly thought they've had a hip flexor strain. And anytime I hear that diagnosis, my antenna go up straight away because we need to rule out a bone stress injury. Um, and these people fit the script. I mean, a lot of times they may have a history of a bone stress injury. Uh, they may have a low BMI. They may report being, uh, if we're talking about women, amenorrheic, uh, they may complain of feeling tired or lethargic with, with males. Um, you may see a similar constellation of symptoms where it's, you know, again, um, poor energy, maybe they're underperforming. Maybe they've had a change in their training again, history of a bone stress injury. Maybe they're, um, not getting morning wood or erections. Um, these are questions that people are uncomfortable asking, but you have to ask them. Um, and, and your patients will be thankful in hindsight, but if, if you think that there's something going on at the level of the anterior hip, I want to know when is it occurring, right? Um, is this occurring with just day-to-day -day activities? Because that's sort of concerning, or is this something that's occurring with running? Does it warm up or does it get worse with running? Where in the running cycle does it happen? Is it happening at terminal stance when you're maybe putting a little bit more load through that anterior hip region capsule? Or is this something that's occurring with initial contact? You know, is that person using a bony shock attenuation strategy um, such as rear foot striking versus more of a soft tissue shock attenuation strategy of say a mid to forefoot strike? But if you think that there's something going on from a contractile standpoint, well, if you load the hip flexors, it should probably reproduce some of that discomfort. Um, now, if someone has a bone stress injury, a lot of the times they may have pain with passive range of motion, which you wouldn't expect if this is a contractile issue or there, there's contractile tissue at play. Because if you're ranging them, their hip should be fine. If you're ranging someone and they start reporting pain with overpressure and like hip flexion and internal rotation, or like a lot of times I'll wind people up in an external rotation, like let it quickly rebound, um, you should start to, to know which tree to bark up. But these are things you need to, you need to have a, a good handle on what's going on also what's the demographic that we're talking about? You know, if we're talking about say, you know, a 50 year old female runner who likes to trail run and um, they're complaining of lateral hip pain, you're probably dealing with a gluteal tendinopathy, but you need to have these different things in your mind and your goal is to disprove your working hypothesis. Yeah, that's great to disprove also some of your hypothesis because uh, that's one way to kind of prove the way you do the differential diagnosis. Yeah. And just have a handle on how symptoms are behaving, you know? Um, but yeah, you want to, you want to be calculated in your decision-making with that person until you feel like the, the muddy water starting to settle a little bit. Yeah. Fantastic job of putting emphasis into some bone stress injuries and how um, we have to be careful when some people go to us 
if they have these kinds of um, hip issues, just yeah. be able to, you know, make sure that it's not first, it's not a bone stress injury. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll say the things that I see clinically, um, I very, I can't think of a single situation. Now I'm not working with sprinters and I do think that hip flexor strains can occur in sprinters, but I can't think of the last runner I've seen in, in a decade that came in where I'm like, you have a hip flexor strain, um, that occurred from running. I also don't think much of, uh, of femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. I do not see that a lot with runners unless they're a triathlete and perhaps poor bike fit. Um, I do see a lot of lateral hip complaints that would tend to jive with a gluteal tendinopathy. Um, and I also tend to see a lot of proximal hamstring tendinopathy um, in, uh, in master's level female runners. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for uh, also giving some more information. Now, since we are in the topic of pain, I would imagine for endurance athletes, they would seem to have less time to for pain science education. Do you think that is accurate or how do you normally integrate pain science for endurance athletes? Pain science education, sorry. Yeah, I'm not one to sit down and basically break out flashcards. Uh, most of these people, <laughs> you know, I think that, a lot of endurance athletes, especially seasoned ones, um, are comfortable with the fact that they know they're going to work through some niggles and aches and pains. And, um, and I, I think you need to really just give them guardrails. Um, so we all know of Tomei's pain monitoring model that was really popularized by Karin Silbernagel. Um, but, you know, I, I'll share that with people. I share a lot of my own anecdotes. I say, look, I've been dealing with um, different lower limb tendinopathies. I've never stopped running. I've raced Ironman on them. I've qualified for Kona with tendinopathy. Um, so it's getting people comfortable with that. And to also have, have some considerations in the back of their mind when they go to make decisions. Um, you know, if someone has low level stable pain and we're confident that it's not a bone stress injury, have at it. All right. Be sensible see how your symptoms respond within 24 hours to make sure that they're settling. Um, and maybe if you're, we're talking about running, prioritize running on non-consecutive days because we need to respect the way collagen synthesis behaves. Um, now, if someone starts running and they lead, they start adopting altered mechanics, they need to pull the plug on that run because they're going to start loading up tissues and regions that are not accustomed to that. And that's when bone stress injuries could perhaps set in a lot faster than people otherwise might think. Um, I think the main thing is making sure that a lot of these endurance athletes aren't resorting to stuff like PRP, corticosteroid injection, uh, and anti-inflammatories, which these things are very commonplace in this community. I can think of a bunch of people I've consulted recently where they were given a corticosteroid injection. The doctor told them, and this isn't to knock doctors, this is this specific professional gave a runner the advice that she was fine to go out and try a run three days later. My policy with corticosteroids is no running four weeks. And if you want to run, go elsewhere because I need to protect you from yourself first and foremost. And I'm not saying that to be difficult or rude or strict, but I don't think people understand the implications of this stuff. Right. Um, 
I do think PRP is something that we need to keep studying. Um, we had Kentaro Anishi on our podcast and he was saying that, you know, most of the time, um, and Ken is a, a brilliant doc at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center who specializes in, in uh, diagnostic ultrasound. Um, but he said, you know, where PRP seems to be very valuable is when someone does have an acute tearing sensation. Um, and they seem to respond very well to that. But if you're trying to use PRP for someone with more of a degenerative tendinopathy, we just don't see the results. I can't see, say I've seen anyone clinically where I'm like, wow, that PRP really, you know, got you going in the right direction. Um, so, and the research is just very unimpressive to me on that. So I think with pain science, it's weaving it in without, you know, I, I think people perhaps think of this notion of sitting down and doing therapeutic neuroscience education, breaking out flashcards and this, yeah. To me, uh, I would, my, my business would go belly up if that's how I worked with endurance athletes. So put guardrails on them, make sure you, you and they both know what they're dealing with and foster, promote good decision-making with them because anything that disrupts consistency of training, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You know, I don't care what sport you play. The best athletes in the world are the ones who enjoy consistency of training. I think this would give you a good lens into, we were talking about, you know, anterior hip pain. You're asking, Hey, how do you, how do you work pain science education in the mix? Well, if someone says, Hey, look, I think I, I strained my hip flexor and I'd say, Oh, when did that happen? And they're like, well, what do you mean? When did that happen? I, there wasn't any specific event. I'm like, Oh, well, that's great. Because it's probably very unlikely that you tore your hip flexor. When you have a strain, that means you tore it. Um, you would have recounted a lot of details about that. So, but this is great because there wasn't one specific injury. This was a gradual onset. So what are some of the things that you think may have caused this region to, to become sensitized or irritable? And then you put it back on them and force them to reflect on their training, their practices, maybe their lifestyle. Um, that's sort of how I work pain science into the mix. Or if someone says, you know, Hey, I, you know, took a fall and, um, you know, I'll think of, I'll provide the example of like when I was riding my bike and I fractured my clavicle. Well, a lot of people would be freaked out about that, but you know, my response would be like, Oh, good thing you broke a bone because bones regenerate. Isn't <laughs> how awesome is that? Right. Yeah. So you plant these seeds and people will sort of, they'll look at you like, yeah, that's weird. I never really thought about it like that. And they'll walk out of that appointment and you've really flipped, flipped the script, you know, but this is done in a very, uh, I think a very not when done correctly. And look, I, I don't get this right all the time, but it should be done in a very subtle nonchalant way. Yeah, that's super cool, like how you just framed it with a fracture of the clavicle. Just to wrap it off again, I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to ask so many more questions and you've been so generous in giving your information and your knowledge to us, but uh, mindful of the time. So, I Oh, you're very welcome. I appreciate you having me on.
I hope you learned a lot from this episode with Chris Johnson. We have a few more episodes for season two, so I hope you can join us. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to ollie at opadvancement.com or my IG, olivercgp.advancement. Our opening and entrance tune is called WWW from Haina's Rhymes. I would like to thank Ron, Arya, and Andy for inspiring me to share great content via this podcast. These are just thoughts going through my head. A moment of reflection that you soon forget. Imagine a world without the internet, where you can't download your intellect. These are just thoughts going through my head. A moment of reflection that you soon forget. Imagine a world without the internet, where you can't download your intellect. Hashtag trending, Snapchat, Insta, Periscope, Esports, BuzzFeed, Tinder. So many ways to meet people online. No one ever has one talk at a time. Messenger, WhatsApp, groups pinging everywhere. Better make it happen now. Wait a minute, no one cares. People press like, they think it means something. Everybody's real like should mean something. Now, if you don't know, Wikipedia, who remembers encyclopedias? If you need a holiday, Expedia, Skyscanner, Airbnb, much media. The shopping online make us greedier. But it's even to the needy, now easier. I can't even hold it together. WWW, we write whatever. New tech updates, we can phone updates. Can't relate. Why wait? Search for new mates. Nothing is private, it's all in the cloud. Is this available? even allowed? You used to shout from the hills to be proud. A good signal will sort you out now. Virtual reality is high definition. The secret to the things in your life you're missing. Blog your way into the big time achievements only exist if they're online. Apparently, people used to use landlines, agree to a mutual place and time. But what happened if they changed their mind? However, about sat nav? How did they find it? Midnight stuck attack, cover copy cabbage patch, technophobic. There's probably a nap for that. These are just thoughts going through my head. A moment of reflection that you soon forget. Imagine a world without the internet where you can't download your intellect these are just thoughts going through my head a moment of reflection that you soon forget imagine a world without the internet where you can't download your intellect